Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This is the first of two podcasts where we are looking at the outcomes of the COP26 climate summit held in Glasgow and asking, what does this mean now for policy and action in the UK? With me to discuss that is Baroness Young of Old Schoon, Barbara Young, a member of the House of Lords Environment and Climate Change Select Committee, and with a long career working in environmental organisations. Baroness Young, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, let's start with the COP26 meeting itself. What's your own view on the progress made by COP in some of the key areas? It depends which side of the bed I get out of how confident or otherwise I feel about the progress that was made. I mean, there were clearly some things that were progressed well. I, the, the least sexy of the lot was the completion of the Paris rulebook, which the media haven't really picked up on at all. But that, I think, is a precursor to allowing for more ambitious, enhanced targets in the declared contributions, since everybody's going to know the rules. And so that hopefully should give people more confidence to beef up their targets. I think it, it was good that there were more countries have now uh, been included in the process and more have signed up to net zero for you know, Japan and South Korea. And we've even got the Indians and the Saudis involved, if not hugely enthusiastic. And the inclusion of coal, even in a diluted way, was some progress. It's, it's a real signal that it's something that's got to be tackled and it's never been any, in any of the agreements before. So that's a step in the right direction. Strangely enough, the things that went probably best was the side deals, the, um, the methane agreement, the deforestation stuff. So, of course, we've got to remember that in the side deals, there's no compliance or reporting mechanisms, so they could well just dribble away. Uh, and I think that though it was a council of desperation to say we've, everybody's got to come back next year and do it again, the reality is that that annual ratcheting process could well be a very useful one. And last, but very far from least, both the business community and the finance community were there in droves. And it wasn't the you know, deputy postboy, it was the chief execs and the chairs. And I was particularly pleased with something known as GFAMS, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which now has been able to deliver a doubling of assets under management for climate with a climate change purpose, which is stunning. So there are lot, lots of things to be cheerful about. The media tended to really focus on the things that were where the wheels were falling off. But, you know, we got we got over the line at the end with some good delivery. So a bit of a mixed picture. But as you say, the media may not have picked up on all of the successes. So that's the global picture from COP. And, and let's turn to the UK. So here in the UK, we have a government commitment to reach net zero by 2050. But a lot of the concerns expressed in COP and more generally are actually about actions needed in the next 10 years, this decade before 2030. Are the, the government's plans for the next decade sufficient to keep us on track to where we need to be? It's good that the government has got this clear commitment to net zero by 2050. I have concerns about whether the actions that are scheduled for this decade are sufficient. It's good that we've now got the net zero strategy because that lays out uh, how the government is going to progress. But uh, it has some big holes in it. There's no 
addressing of the behavior change issue you know we're all going to have to eat differently travel differently heat our homes differently all sorts of differently and that wasn't in there there was very little at all focus on the big land use changes and particularly big agricultural practice changes that are going to be needed over the next 10 years and there really isn't sufficient funding in the net zero strategy and treasury is handing out some money, but that's not enough. Treasury really needs to think about fiscal and taxation policy in a much more rounded way in order to achieve climate change objectives. Uh, And at the moment, there's no signs of them doing that. There there are some huge mistakes, of course, that the government's made, like cutting the aid budget, like doing a trade deal with Australia. I said, I absolutely sod all, if you'll pardon the technical term, about climate change. So we really got to make sure that future trade deals absolutely seek climate change parity if whatever we're doing, the country that we're trading with should also be doing it before we sign these trade deals. So there's quite a lot of anxiety and holes in the government's plans for the next 10 years. One of those potential holes, and and this is actually something raised in a podcast I had a couple of weeks ago with a a member of the US-UK COP26 Youth Action Group, was about power generation and the fact that we don't just need to increasingly bring on stream large amounts of renewable energy, but we actually need to phase out the use of fossil fuels, phase out the use of oil and gas. And obviously we've had the the sort of the coal agreement in COP, but in terms of oil and gas, where is the UK in terms of switching away from these things? I mean, there are commitments to to move away from fossil fuels. And if we look at the kind of areas where there needs to be the biggest effort of the most number of people things like decarbonizing homes we've now got the uh, strategy for that but there's not a clear implementation plan and um, not a clear amount of resource to enable the decarbonization of homes to take place there's also the issue of decarbonizing transport but the logistics of electric vehicle implementation are struggling, you know, we've not got enough charge points, um, the subsidies for uh, creating more charge points are not sufficient. And there are real cost barriers to people switching to cleaner non-fossil fuel technologies. So, you know, air and ground source heat pumps, I've, I've got a big upfront cost and it takes a long period for payback. And that has got to be remedied. Likewise, the cost of electric vehicles is still too high. And what we need is not just the cost of these pieces of technology to go down, but also the barriers just in in terms of the straight awkwardness and hassle of transferring, particularly to different forms of space heating, to be overcome. But the Treasury, at the end of the day, comes into the firing line again, because basically it needs a strategy to make fossil fuels more expensive than green fuels. And to not just rely on the fact that the technology costs can be brought down as volumes increase. So there's a lot of work to be uh, gone through on a variety of fronts if we're going to move away from fossil fuels in the UK. From what you said, you see this as much about fiscal incentives as about regulatory prevention. Uh, Absolutely, because, you know, you could regulate till you're blue in the face, but there's got to be a means of getting the solutions to happen 
that will that allow the regulation to be met, as it were. So for me, it's this basket of instruments approach. You know, you need regulation, you need information, you need incentives, you need peer pressure, public pressure, you need taxation and fiscal instruments, you need behaviour change uh, methods that allow people to make changes to the practice that, and to transfer to different technologies in ways that make it easy for them. And you spoke then about behaviour change, and, and certainly you hear a lot about, oh, it'll be all right because technology and things will help. But earlier in your remarks, you talked about the fact that we're going to have to live in a different way, eat in a different way, do things in a different way. And I'm wondering to what extent can we get to net zero with the kind of lifestyles we have and to what extent do we as a, as a, as a population actively need to change those lifestyles? And how do we have that conversation? Well, if you listen to the Prime Minister, the answer is that we don't need to change our lifestyles, but I don't think that's true. But that doesn't mean to say that we should be relying on every single human being in the nation to do heroic things in lifestyle change, because that will not happen. We've got to make it so easy. And in many cases, it will be a technological solution or a financial solution of uh, making green things cheaper and, and ungreen things more expensive and smoothing the implementation hurdle in terms of just difficulty of adopting new technologies that will all have to come together to make that behavior change happen rather than lecturing people and pointing the finger at them and saying you should be doing this and you should be doing that because that will not convert 60 million people to doing the right thing. I think there are some real technological issues that um, could give us problems. If you look at the transfer to primarily an electricity-based economy away from fossil fuels, the amount of hydrogen that is part of that mix is, is huge and growing. And yet we don't really have a proper hydrogen strategy yet. And I have not much confidence that we're on a trajectory to get our electricity supply decarbonized in the way that it's going to have to be. Uh, it's not just hydrogen, I mean, nuclear also, you know, we've faffed around on nuclear policy in this country for the last 20 years without making any real decisions. And it's coming home to roost now. And so getting enough nuclear capacity to get us over the, the hump until the hydrogen-based electricity supply really starts to come on board is going to be a real struggle. So I think you can do a lot with technology. There are some holes in the technologies that we're envisaging, but we've really got to use all the tools in the toolkit to get behaviour change to happen in ways that aren't just about giving people information. It's about giving them options, uh, making the options cheaper that are the good options and about developing a, a narrative that means that it becomes socially unacceptable to choose the wrong options apart from anything else. Uh, and I think if we can get that to happen, we will have seen behaviour change despite the Prime Minister. You mentioned so many things in your answer just then. I wanted to pick you up on, on a couple of them. One of them was hydrogen and I've heard the argument made that one of the ways of generating hydrogen is actually to use fossil fuels, but then carbon capture and storage. And I wondered what you thought about carbon capture and storage. It, it seems to be something that's always promised, but, but never delivered. But I don't want to put words in your mouth. 
Yes, I mean, there's, there is more sign that the technology, that the capability, the practicality of carbon capture and storage is beginning to be examined with more practicality than it has been in the past. I mean, it became, a, it, for a while it was just a mantra and nobody was able to do it. And we hadn't really worked through how it was going to be done. I think we're getting closer to having worked out how it's going to be done, but it, it's got some big ifs and buts still associated with it. And it does mean that, that we could be facing a major re-piping of the country in order to do large-scale carbon capture and storage on, uh, on a whole variety of different processes. So I personally hope that we are not going to be long in the phase of creating carbon for fossil fuels, but move quickly to proper green hydrogen, uh, and that we don't over-rely on carbon capture and storage. Of course, the, the, the sexy thing at COP26 was direct capture. You know, we're going to go and suck stuff out of the air. I, again, let's not overfocus on technologies that are quite a way out. Let's do the things now that we know we can do and let's do them well. One of the other things you mentioned in earlier remarks was nuclear. Uh, in fact, I think you said that we'd faffed around with nuclear policy, uh, which, is, which is a fair description that I've heard from other people. What's your view on these small modular reactors as opposed to sort of very large uh, reactors? There is no doubt about it, there has been quite a lot of progress on the technology of small modular, modular reactors. And they're much, it's a much more forgiving way forward than having to build whacking great nuclear power stations that take forever and cost a fortune. I'm still slightly concerned about the security issues to do with small scale modular reactors. You know, if they are capable of being built by any Tom, Dick and Harry all over the world, you know, we could well find that we've got some major health and safety issues on our hands in the, for the future. And the problem with nuclear health and safety is when the bang goes bang, it goes bang with a bang. And also it persists in terms of pollution for a very, very long time. So I'm slightly nervous about that. And after years and years of being very anti-nuclear power, I only became pro when it became abundantly clear that unless we did that, we were going to continue reliance on fossil fuels far too, far too long. And so I think we should be regarding it as a transition technology. But it may well be that, that in order to be able to get the benefit of nuclear, we've got bung up fast a replicable set of small-scale modular reactors. Let me take you to a different topic now. We've been talking quite a lot about reducing emissions. But the other side of the coin is adaptation, uh, because obviously temperature is increasing, the emissions are already in the atmosphere. What does the UK need to do now uh, and over the next few years in terms of adaptation? I invented the adaptation subcommittee of the Climate Change Committee and got it through the legislation, and I'm deeply pleased about that. But at the moment, it's reporting and highlighting pretty poor progress uh, in the UK on adaptation. Only at the last report, only five of the 34 sectors that they looked at had shown any progress at all. And I think there are some really big issues calling out for change. First of all, I, I would like mandatory adaptation reporting to be introduced for all infrastructure sectors and for all local authorities. We had that originally, in the guidance from the Adaptation Subcommittee and the government put their foot 
on it and said, no, it was over overreacting. But I don't think it is overreacting. I, I learned my lesson badly from uh, one of the floods where we almost lost the power distribution to quite a chunk of the Midlands to a flood. And it would have been out for many, many months. And it just doesn't bear thinking about it, quite frankly. So at that point, it became clear to me that protecting our major infrastructure, ensuring that we're not going to have overheating in our buildings, making sure that the rules on flood risk management are carried out properly, that we get better standards of water conservation in buildings. All of those things are, are really important. And we've, we've got to see adaptation as absolutely as important as mitigation. And the adaptation subcommittee knows how it should be done and can talk about it endlessly. It just needs government to get the finger out and local authorities as well. It needs coordination between national and local. There were some changes at COP, the doubling of the adaptation budget, but that was doubling from squat to diddly squat. And so there needs to be more international money for adaptation. Though probably that can usefully be bolted on to the two-year process that was invented at COP26 for the adaptation plan, the global plan. Um, and I hope that that will bring more profile to the adaptation issues. But, you know, Bangladesh and the small island states are the sharp end of it. But Britain is not that far behind. You know, we're increasingly seeing urban floods of the sort that that quite frankly have got to be resolved by things like sustainable drainage systems and, and good urban drainage. Really interesting. Let me take you in a, a slightly different direction. You talked about the Treasury once or twice, and that's partly about uh, funding, of course, and, and fiscal incentives. But, but I want to talk to you actually about the whole system and, and GDP. And uh, earlier this year, uh, Professor Partha Dasgupta chaired the major review on biodiversity, and he was arguing, and many others have argued too, that environment and biodiversity needs to be brought into GDP, needs to be actually valued so that we're not pursuing growth and pursuing things that are just trashing the, the environment. Are you, are you detecting any take up of these ideas, any progress towards doing any of this stuff? I think some local authorities are doing some quite interesting work with natural capital as part of their planning process. But to be honest, I don't see any commitment in the Treasury to making a change to bring natural capital and biodiversity and, and climate change to the centre of the economic system. I think there's a big reappraisal of what the Treasury role needs to be is required. And, well, it's not happening at the moment, and I assume that that's because the Chancellor isn't as interested as he might be. So finally, you've mentioned a number of areas, the Treasury and others, where, where there are things to do. What would you say the priorities are for the government over the next 12 to 18 months to ensure that the UK remains on course to, to deliver its commitments? The first priority for the government has got to be the presidency. You know, We're not president for a fortnight, we're president for a year. And there's a huge amount to be done to get to bring home better NDCs to nag, cajole, threaten, whatever, the recalcitrant, to make sure that the side deals have got an implementation process associated with them, uh, particularly the methane and deforestation ones, 
and also to continue to really encourage more money in the system. You know, we we didn't make it over the line of a, a hundred billion. We got close to it, but we need to get over the, that over the line. The compensation debate began, but was not concluded. You know, the fact that it's the rich polluting countries that are making life bad for the poor surviving countries. Uh, and they don't see why they should give up their carbon if, if we're not um, compensating them for, for, for the damage that we've already caused to them. And that's not just government money that they, the government ought to be drumming up. It's also private sector money. So there's a lot to do still on the presidency. Uh, and I hope Alex Sharma will continue because I, you know, he's worked his socks off and he, he's got his head around the brief well. And I think he deserves every support to deliver a successful 50 more weeks of the presidency. Uh, in here in the UK, I would like to see a zero carbon test for all policies, including investment and fiscal and tax policies. I'd like to see climate change parity for all trade agreements. I'd like to see the government develop a land use strategy that looks at all the competing demands for land, including the ways in which we're going to have to change agriculture and the use of land for sequestration, for carbon, for carbon reduction strategies. I would like to see more delivery of nature-based solutions. I don't think nature-based solutions got enough attention at COP26 and that we see more ambitious targets for trees and peat, but an understanding within a land use strategy of where is best for some of these nature-based solutions and making sure that we don't put houses on the places that are best for the nature-based solutions. Though we have got the zero carbon strategy, it doesn't really, it's not really very strong on actions and timescales and transparent and monitorable pathways for our highest carbon areas, buildings, transport and agriculture. So I'd like to see that. And I think the biggest contribution the government could make is absolutely insisting that all public procurement had a climate change objective and that we go for zero carbon as the ultimate objective of public procurement. It's a huge amount of money. It can leverage change into a vast variety of industries and activities and it's high time government did it. That's a comprehensive list. Uh, we'll have to see how much of that the Chancellor and others take up. That's all we've got time for today. But Baroness Young, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Baroness Young of Old Schoon, a member of the House of Lords Environmental and Climate Change Select Committee. Baroness Young is also a speaker at an event being organised by the Foundation on the 1st of December, entitled COP26, Where Do We Go From Here? Details of that event, which is free to attend, can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Also on our website are details of all our other events, all our blogs, and all previous editions of this podcast. Next week, in the second of our podcasts, reflecting on COP26 and what do we do after it, I'll be speaking with Professor Sir Charles Godfrey, Director of the Oxford Martin School at the University of Oxford. Until then, goodbye.